All right, good morning, brethren. Why don't you go ahead and turn to 1 Peter with me. 1 Peter chapter 2. Familiar territory. As we're making our way through the language here of some just extremely precious, um, I guess I've been calling them identity markers. These realities that are now ours in Jesus Christ, verse 9 that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." Two verses, amazing content. Uh, I just encourage you, I don't know how many of you make a regular practice of scripture memory. I feel like I, I have in the past, and I, 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 sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. I wish I did it more regularly, and I want to try to, but these two verses here are uh, a prime specimen to just memorize and think on and meditate on, and, and hopefully over the last several weeks, you've been helped to understand some of their richness so um, before we get into our, um, our text this morning, why don't I pray and ask the Lord's help. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, you're our shepherd, you're our teacher, you're our king, you're our savior, and we just praise you for just all that you are for us and all we are in you. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would please, just once again, on yet another Sunday morning as we open your word, that you would speak to our souls the things that we need. Lord, that you would correct us, exhort us, rebuke us, discipline us, um, renew us. Lord, that we can see you afresh, that we can be encouraged, re-strengthened, and uh, ultimately, Lord, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel because of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so last week we took a second to look at this idea here that we are a people for God's own possession. That in Jesus Christ now, you're not your own, right? You have been bought with a price, Paul says. You are not your own. So this means that your opinions about the directions of your life are not ultimate anymore. Um, Your greatest question, your greatest desire is not your own will, right, but his will. And uh, we see this certainly in Jesus' prayer, right, in the Lord's prayer in Matthew chapter 6, right, your will be done. And ultimately, this is the heart of every genuine believer. We want his will to be done. Our great concern is how are we doing before him, right, that's our great concern. Um, that's the thing we think about when no one's around, when no one's looking. Those are the things we're thinking about. Lord, you know, are you pleased with me today? Um, and of course, there's a sense in which, you know, we, we always have his love because of the gospel, but there's also a sense in which that you can please him and displease him, right? The spirit can be grieved in your life. That's a reality. Um, and so, uh, so there's this reality, though, that, that, that we are owned by God. We are his, and we want to be vessels used for his, for his service, um, but just an amazing reality that we are possessed by him. He owns us. And if, he's, if he owns us, he's not going to give us up, right? Ultimately, this also speaks to the, really, 
and a sense of your security, just this reality that you're God's. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he's got the strongest hands out there. And Jesus actually highlights that, doesn't he? He says, no one can pluck him out of his hand. And people get cute with that verse. They say, oh yeah, you can't pluck him out, but you can jump out. And all these kind of cute verses. No, 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 no. You have to understand. Even your own unbelief. And I'm not talking about ultimate unbelief here, okay? But even your own struggles and failures and unbelief and sin is not going to pluck you out of the hand of the living God. It just won't. Now certainly if someone ends up becoming a, you know, a, effectively an atheist, then we can say, well, they never really truly one of the Lord's. But the bottom line is, if you're in Christ, you're in Christ forever. Um, God owns you, and no one can take you away from him, right? We're all convinced that God is the most powerful being in the universe, right? Well, that's good. That's good. So you're in safe hands. So you are God's own possession. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession for a particular purpose. So the text actually moves right into purpose. In other words, he he tells you who you are, and now he moves right into the entailments of that and the purpose of these identity markers. And it's so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we looked last week a little bit at this fact that, that we are who we are so that we have a purpose to our lives. And it's so that we may proclaim. Christians are people who speak out. Christians are people who verbalize, vocalize who he is, what he has done. We vocalize this to him, right? We vocalize this to the brethren, and we also vocalize this to, the sinful, to a sinful, dark world. We proclaim. This is what we do. Part of the, one of the main points of you being set apart as a Christian is to testify to the living God. Jesus says, I have come to testify to the light. That's what he says. I've come to testify. Jesus Christ, the preexistent son, had seen the light, hasn't he? Hadn't he? He'd been with the Father and the Spirit for all eternity, and he comes into this world to tell us this is what he's like. And that's what we do. We're people who proclaim. We're people who verbalize and who publish and who show forth the living God and what he's done in his son. Well, this morning I want to take a little bit Take a look a little while here at this term that he uses to capture just what's in Peter's mind when he thinks about what we are to proclaim. And he uses a beautiful term. It's actually found in Peter primarily. It's found once in Paul, but it's found, found in, pre, in Peter, in First Peter or Second Peter, um, I think four or five times. And it's this word, excellencies. Excellencies. You look down there and you can see it. See, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Now before I talk about this term excellencies, I want you to understand that it's the excellencies of him. We proclaim him, don't we? This is what we proclaim. When we're, when we're out there talking to individuals about the Lord, when we're out there uh, trying to be a witness for Christ, what we're talking about is we're talking about him. God himself. It's not about us proclaiming our excellencies, right? That's, that's sort of silly. You go on and on talking about your own excellencies and about all of your own accomplish, accomplishments, right? Well, th- this is certainly not what Peter is talking about. Peter is talking about him, his excellencies. Not talking about what earthly benefit we can, that he can give you even. It's talking about him. Not talking about our denominational heritage or our Christian traditions. We proclaim him. 
the excellencies of him. And so what this means is that you have to be certainly, in, in a sense, in a real sense, gripped by him in order to proclaim him. This assumes a certain understanding, appreciation, glorying in who he is in order to be compelled to proclaim him. There's some track record as you've walked with God and you've experienced his goodness and his grace and his power and his glory that you just can proclaim him. But we proclaim him. This assumes you know of him. You know of him to such a degree that it's not just casual mention, but so gripped are you by him that you are proclaiming him. And in particular here, proclaiming his excellencies, as I mentioned. Now the term here for excellencies, the term can be translated as virtue or praises, so that you may proclaim the praises of him or the virtues of him. I think the NAS and the ASV are I think it captures it with excellencies. I think that's the, a, good, a good translation. Excellencies. Moral eminence. Those intrinsic qualities that make one praiseworthy. That's what he's talking about here. Intrinsic eminence. This means that what we are to proclaim is God's intrinsic glory and virtue that make him utterly praiseworthy. What makes him excellent in every way is what we proclaim. It communicates all those attributes that show the Lord's superior character, worth, and glory over all things, over all creatures, visible or invisible. The term itself captures all those aspects of God for which he should be praised. Now this this concept of praising something or someone for their excellence is, I mean, it's not a foreign thing to us. We're pretty familiar with that, right? I mean, if your sports team's doing real well because they're stacked, you know, their offensive line is stacked or whatever, you're going to be talking about that. Um, If you have a tool that you really like, you know, you're going to go around talking to people about it and you're going to tell them why, you know, why Makita's better than... Milwaukee, which it probably is. Sorry, Slade. No, but you're going to, you know, if there's something, if there's something in the end, if, if there's something that, or someone that is of a superior quality, you praise it. That's just what we do. You know, it, it, Paige and I, we bought, we bought a van a little while ago from a dealership up in Easley, um, and we bought it. The, the, the people were so nice. They gave us a great price. Afterwards, when we had a little bit of issues, we went up there. They took care of us. They not only fixed the issue at no cost, they ended up give, throwing in a detail and giving us an Outback gift card. I mean, this place was ridiculous in their service. And we, just, we would just talk to people about it. I'm like, listen, if you're going to buy a car, go there. Um, because they are superior in their service. Excellent. Good business. But that's what we do. We, we already do that. You know? so, so what it means is that you've got to be so convinced of God's superior attributes, which they are, we don't have to make them up, that you proclaim him. You want to talk to people about how good he is, how powerful he is, how merciful he is, how loving he is, how just he is. You want to talk to people about his excellencies because they outstrip all other excellencies. Right? He's in a class all by himself. 
So we proclaim his excellencies. What are the superior qualities that the Lord has that we should praise and declare them? Well, I mean, in, in some senses, in every way, he's excellent. Who he is, what he's done, are all of superior status. So Peter is saying here that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession to proclaim our glorious God. In a sense, this is why you exist. Remember, we looked at that passage in Isaiah 43, 21. The people whom I formed will declare my praise. That's first on God's mind when he forms you as a new birth. What are you going to do as a new living creation of mine? You're going to declare my praise. That's what you're going to do. You're going to talk to people about how glorious I am. Because he is glorious, not because God's a megalomaniac, but because he really is full of glory. So let's think about what are some of these attributes? What are some of these excellencies we're talking about? Well, the first one we can think of is, is his holiness. His holiness. We tell people that he is holy. You know, The scriptures only refer to God alone as holy, holy, holy. He's the only being in all the universe that if you were in his presence, you would die just by virtue of his holiness. He's holy. He's in a class all by himself. You can't come near him. Not as a sinner. Unless you're a glorified sinner, which we will be one day. But God is so holy that even the sinless celestial beings in Isaiah cover their faces in his presence. Even they cover their faces in the presence of the living God. And what do they cry out ceaselessly day and night? What do they cry out? You know. Holy, holy, holy. That's what they cry out over and over and over. Now is that just, you know, today guys, remember we've got to say holy, holy, holy all day. Or is that an actual response because they know whose presence they're in? It's a response, isn't it? It's a holy, holy. I mean, they're constantly taken with who he is. He's holy, utterly holy. No one compares. His name is holy. It's I am. I am who I am. He's the eternal God. He's the self-sufficient God. He's the self-existent God. He doesn't need anything. He's not a God who requests of us certain things. He's not a God who's contingent on human beings. He doesn't need anything. That's why idolatry is so, so shameful, because you make a God who you, who, who's a needy God, right? who needs a sacrifice or a libation or something like this. No, God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need any bulls. He doesn't need any goats. He doesn't need any of that. That is a teaching point. It's not a thing he needs. He's the I am. His holiness excels all others. And matter of fact, if anything is holy, it is so because it's connected to him. Right? If you're holy, it's because he's made you holy. If you're not holy, you're profane. Right? And that's, that's just the reality of things. Our holiness is derived. His is intrinsic to who he is. He's excellent. He's Holy other. 
What about his glory? His glory, certainly tied to his holiness, his glory is sort of the, the expression of his holiness. His glory is the thing you see, so to speak. When you see God, it's his glory. The effulgence, the eminence, the, the glory, the radiance, all of that, that's sort of what we're talking about here. And his glory is of such a quality that the psalmist in Psalm 113 can say, the Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. His glory is above the heavens. You hear the language of excellence. It's a superlative glory. And you have to think of this. His glory is above the heavens. What are we talking about here? We're not talking about his glory is just north of the heavens. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that his glory itself is far superior in excellence and majesty and in beauty than the heavens. That's what we're talking about. When the psalmist is talking about God and his glory, he's talking about a glory that transcends the most beautiful night sky you can imagine in the heavens. If we were to see God, we would see a being whose majesty and wonder far outstrip the most excellent pictures of the most stupefying supernovas ever captured on Hubble. His glory is above the heavens. It's above. And why does God make the heavens? So that you know His glory is above the heavens. That's why He makes them. What what do the heavens do after all? What do they do? They declare what? The glory of God. If the heavens are this amazing, how amazing must their God be? So his glory is excellent. His sovereign greatness, his immensity is incomparable in magnitude. I just couldn't help but think about Isaiah 40 monumental text in the scriptures very familiar to us Isaiah 40 written to a people that are dispirited and downcast a people who feel forgotten by God because of their circumstances of exile God through Isaiah writes a passage that will get them to look at him God gives a passage that says look at me you dispirited downcast depressed exiles look at me And what are we to look at? Well, we're to look at a God, Isaiah 40, verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span. It's this idea of God being that sort of grand decorator. You know, he marks off the heavens. You know, he he sets this galaxy of, of 10 billion stars here and this galaxy of 5 billion stars here. He sets them, and he marks them off by a span. I want it to be that big. Yeah, that works. That's what we're talking about. That's the kind of God we're talking about. To a people that are dispirited and exile and depressed and thinking, God has forgotten me, lift up your eyes to the God who marked out the galaxies, the Milky Way, and on and on and on. And he's the God who holds the water in his hands. He's the God who calculates the dust of the earth by the measure the dust of the earth. He weighs the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. And then Isaiah 
just feels compelled. Who's directed the Spirit of the Lord, or has His counselor informed Him? With whom did He consult, and who gave Him understanding, and who taught Him in the path of justice, and taught Him knowledge, and informed Him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Like fine dust. Do you think of that? He lifts them up like fine dust, you know? Hawaii, he lifts up and he careful not to blow it out of his hand. It's fine dust. I mean, this is what we're talking about. This is the immensity of God. He creates a universe that we can't even find the end, and yet he's greater than that. This is what we're talking about. The immensity, the sovereign greatness of God. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the beasts, it's like, it doesn't matter. It's insignificant to him. He doesn't need any of it. All the nations are as nothing before him. Like a drop from a bucket. Like a drop from a bucket. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. And God says, to whom then will you liken me? Or what likeness will you compare with him? You know, some people think that there's life on other planets. Why? Well, because the universe is so big. Because they think, I mean, surely we're not the only ones out there. Right? I mean, you know, surely there's got to be another inhabited Earth. Well, I don't believe that. Maybe just maybe maybe the Lord just set it up this way so he could have Isaiah forty written. So that we realize that we are so small. And he is so big and so great. And all the things in your life that cause you anxiety and fretfulness and, and worry, all of these things in some ways. In some ways, are just blips, incidental, when you see him rightly. And that's why Isaiah, that's why God through Isaiah, wrote Isaiah. Even nations. are as nothing before him. He says here, all the nations. All the nations? If, like, if all the nations got together and were to stick their rockets up at the heavens, it'd be like an army of ants, right, trying to keep you out of your house. You can imagine all these little ants. And all these little ants, if you could hear them talking, they're sitting there saying, we're going to get you, you know? And what are you doing? You're going, squish, squish. That's what we're talking about. That's the greatness of God. All the nations are regarded as nothing, meaningless. Now, he's not saying that all the nations here are without value. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean that all the nations are without value. I mean, the Lord Jesus died for men and women in these nations, right? So he's not saying that. So what does it mean? Well, what it means is that these nations have no bearing or impact on his sovereign reign. They make no difference in the end with what they want to do. God is sovereign over all things. 
The heart of the king is in his hands. He turns it whichever way he wishes. Everything going on in Ukraine, China, Afghanistan, all of it, all of it, all of it is under God's sovereign rule and design and ordination. The nations of this world, in terms of their counsel, are absolutely meaningless. God does not come to Vladimir. He doesn't come to Joe Biden. He doesn't come to anybody and say, hey, what do you think we should do here or there or anywhere? He doesn't do any of that. The nations are regarded as nothing. God is sovereign. The world is going along as God wants it to go along. No one counsels him. No one teaches him. His understanding is infinite. Psalm 147, 5, great is the Lord, abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Infinite understanding. He's truly excellent in his greatness. No one can thwart God's will. You know, we can talk about it in terms of the tragedies of the events, and that's true, and it's grieving, and at a certain level it is. But as believers, we certainly don't sink into despair. Because to sink into despair would be atheism. Wouldn't it? Again, not saying we don't grieve over evil. We do. And we pray against it. But we also know that the nations are a drop from a bucket. I love that. Drop from a bucket. You know, you think like you're, you're walking, you just got water from the well and you're carrying it and a, a, drop, a drop spills out and that's, that's all the nations of the world to God. Drop from a bucket. Just, oh. that's, that's, that's how significant, that's how, that's how impactful, influential they are to the Lord in terms of their counsel, in terms of their will, in terms of their purposes. It's nothing. Our God is great, brethren. Just understand that Isaiah wrote that passage for you, for me. That's why it exists. It exists for you, to a people that feel forgotten. You know why they feel forgotten? Because they forgot him. They forgot how big he was. They forgot. And then, and then God, graciously and merciful, because he's excellent in his mercy, gives us Isaiah 40 to say, look at me. Don't fret. I contain all things. Nothing contains me. Well, he's also excellent in his other attributes, his mercy, for instance. Certainly he's excellent in his mercy. He's merciful beyond imagining. The infinitely holy and righteous God. He looked on us rebels and he took pity on us. So mercy has the idea of pity built into it. Compassion, heartfelt compassion and pity. Seeing someone in a dreadful state and then meeting that need and helping them up. That's the idea. And so the Lord looks at us, this sinful world, committing spiritual suicide every day, choosing other gods rather than the true and living God. And he has mercy on some because he's a merciful God. We're rebels, after all. We were dead in sin, haters of God, following Satan and his course, 
at war with him in our minds, Paul says. Paul said we were hostile in mind to God. And our minds were always flicking God off. And our minds were always telling him off. And our minds were telling him we're hating him. That's, that's, what, that's who we are. That's who we are by nature. And God sees that. And instead of just immediately crushing us, he sees us as people that, a sense in which we don't know what we're doing. And he has mercy on some. Instead of banishing us into the outer darkness, he banishes his son in our place. This is infinite mercy. You can't outdo God in his mercy. His mercy is excellent. And he hasn't just forgiven our sin, he's adopted us into his family. He's given us a glorious future and eternity with him where he will show his infinite grace and mercy to us forever in Jesus. And this is why Paul says, Brethren, I urge you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living, holy, and sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's just reasonable to give your entire life to this God who's been so mercy. That's just reasonable. It's completely unreasonable for you to hold back any part of your life from the Lord. But it's very reasonable. It's very reasonable for you to lay down your life every day in his service because of his great mercy to you. And oh, if we could just see how merciful he really is. If we could just really catch a glimpse that, wow, yeah, man, I really do deserve wrath from God. I really do deserve his justice. I really do deserve to be dropped into a lake of fire. I really do. That's not just reformed, you know, fire and brimstone. That's not it. That's actually true. It's actually true. And you know it's true. All you got to do is turn on the news. All you got to do is take a good look at your own heart. And you can see how evil we are to the core. And yet God gives us mercy. So his mercy is excellent. His love, his faithfulness, his righteousness is excellent. Psalm 36, such an awesome psalm. We see God's love, faithfulness, and righteousness described to the full. And Psalm 36 is a psalm where the wickedness of man is contrasted with the matchless love and faithfulness of the Lord. You can read it. But this one passage here in 5 and 6, the psalmist says, in contrast to the wicked, contrast the Lord, and he says, your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. You see that? Heavens, skies, mountains of God. Judgments are like a great deep. His love is so bountiful. It extends to the heavens, he says. It's like you can't measure it. You can't see an end to it. We can't see any horizon when it comes to his love. There's no end. It just extends on and on. That's encouraging, isn't it? Man, that's encouraging. And again, that's why, um, yeah, that's why we can get up in the morning. No matter how we feel, we know that God's love is rich and full. And like we've talked about before here, stronger than our own love for him.
He wants us to do well more than we want to do well, in a sense. His love reaches to the heavens. Oh man, praise God for that. His faithfulness. Thinking of the faithfulness of the Lord. He says here, the faithfulness of God reaches to the skies. Again, no limit. His reliability, when we're talking about faithfulness, we're talking about his reliability, his dependability, his truthfulness. It will never wane. It will never falter. We can bank our eternity on whatever God has said because he's faithful to what he said. We can. We can live by it. He is faithful. His righteousness and his justice is like the mountains of God, it says. Like the mountains of God. Not like the flimsy justice of man that's constantly pushed to and fro by popular opinion and feckless emotion. God's justice is like a mountain. It will not be moved. Of such a stable character is God's justice. It's like a mountain. You look at it a hundred years ago, and you look at it today, it looks the same. There's no alterations in it. His justice is utterly inflexible. This is God's justice. It's perfect. This is good news for us. His justice is perfect. Because if you're in Jesus Christ, you never have to wonder if the righteous verdict passed over you will ever be overturned. The fact that His justice is excellent is actually very important for your own assurance. Because all the justice that was due you because of your sin, Jesus took in Himself on the tree. And all of that justice and condemnation that you were owed, Jesus genuinely drank it to the bottom. And therefore, as the hymn writer said, now that sword of justice sleeps for you. God's justice is is wonderful. And isn't it good that God, we're not forgiven because God cheated justice or something? You know, with all the trans stuff going on these days and all the, the athletes, like the, the biological male athletes identifying as females and, and uh, competing in these athletic events, and then they win. I mean, how sweet is that victory, really? You know? If you're a, if you're a 6'4", you know, 215-pound man, and you beat another girl at some event, and, you know, whatever it is, track and field, whatever it is, and you're winning. I mean, how happy are you really? You cheated. But our salvation isn't like that. God didn't cheat. Jesus really did bear all of it. God didn't fudge books at all. Every sin. All of them. Every bitter thought. He took them. So that when God says, you're righteous, man, he can say with a full throat, and it's true, and it's forever. It's like a mountain. Never change. God is excellent in his justice. 
God is excellent in His goodness. Again, these are all the things we, we tell people. This is, this is all the excellencies of God. I mean, these are, and I'm just scratching the surface, just scratching it. There's 10,000 other things that we could bring in to illustrate all these things. I'm just scratching. But we declare His infinite goodness. And we declare His infinite goodness in a world that is suspicious of His goodness. Or mocks it altogether. Yeah, right, God's good. Oh, He is? Have you ever seen what's going on in Somalia? Have you ever seen what's going on in Lebanon? How are you going to tell me God's good? This is what they say. And it's because they don't understand sin. They don't understand the reality of it. Why is there evil in the world? Well, because of me. And you. This is what the Bible holds out. The Bible holds out that it's because of us. It's because of an adversary called the serpent. This is why there's evil in the world. Jesus flat out says to the rich young ruler, no one's good but God alone. No one. No one is good but God alone. He's excellent in his goodness. He's the only good one there is. If you think you're inherently good, you've never seen yourself, you've never seen God, and you don't take Jesus' words very seriously. Most people you talk to think they're good. Most unbelievers. Jesus said there's no one good but God. Even, even to those fathers and mothers who give good gifts to their children, Jesus calls what? Evil. Oh, if you being evil, give good gifts to your children. How much more are your Heavenly Father? Wow, Jesus, that's kind of, you know. Even if you being evil, give good gifts to your children. That's who you are. That's who I am. The only one good is God. Every bit of sunshine, every bit of laughter God allows in this wicked world screams that He is good. Think about all the scientists that, that have jobs in His world looking at His creation looking at all the evidences of God's handiwork over all things, yet not acknowledging Him at all, yet still glorying in their task, do so because God is good. The only reason you can do science is because God is good. They don't give Him a lick of credit. They scoff at Him. Satan's attack in the garden was against God's goodness. We think about that passage in Genesis 3 as an attack against God's word, and it really was. But it was an attack on God's word connected to and undergirded by God's motive. Right? He didn't say that. He just knows that when you, when you eat of the tree... You're going to be like him. God doesn't have your best interest at heart. You won't die. God isn't good. You can't trust him. You can't trust what he said. He didn't mean exactly what you think he means. See, God's a narcissist. And he doesn't want any competitors. And that's why he said it. 
See, he, he denies the goodness of God. The three things attacked in the garden, the first three things that were attacked in the garden were God's word, God's goodness, and God's judgment. Satan said, you won't die. It's an attack on God's judgment, right? An attack on his goodness and an attack on his word. And we see that in every generation. You know, the church feeling more and more pressure to back off the, 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 the preaching about eternal judgment. Don't go there. Don't say that. Right? We we'll always feel this pressure to back up, back up. Don't, don't go there. Don't talk about the consequences. And that's Satan. He's just right there. You won't die. Come on, it can't be that bad. That's unreasonable after all for God to judge just because of some of these kinds of sins, right? Satan's just there chipping away, chipping away. And he's chipping away always at God's goodness too. God isn't good. He's not good. Look at your life. Look at what's going on in the world. God isn't good. But of course, this was a lie. Satan was the liar, and we have about 6,000 years of history to prove that the day you eat of it, you will die. And I mean it. And we are dying. Because God and His Word are faithful. But... God is utterly good. God's goodness displayed in, in, in boundless measure in the garden. I mean, if you were there in the garden, and you're surrounded by, you know, a virgin world full of color and sounds and beauty and, and fruit-bearing plants and just, the world was your oyster. One tree. One tree. Satan says, oh, I know why that one tree is off limits. Because God isn't good. Wait a minute. That's ridiculous. Look at all that we already have, Satan. No, you're a liar. See, that's how it should have gone down. Satan gets you to forget all the blessings of God. Forget, he, he causes you to forget all the goodness of God. And he certainly wants to keep you from thinking about the cross of Jesus Christ, which is the, the apex of God's goodness. I'm going to keep this from your view. You, I don't want you to see it. No, you're cut off from God. No, you've done too much. No, you're, you're this and that. But God is utterly good. But we doubt His goodness so fast. So there are so many excellencies, brethren, so many excellencies to proclaim. But it takes you getting in front of Isaiah, it takes you getting in front of the Word, it takes you just, just remembering on a regular basis these things. As Peter says in chapter 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word. You need the Word. You need to be renewed. You need to get these things in front of your minds. Don't let them, as Proverbs say, vanish from your sight. And then Peter wants to remind you, as if he needed even more incentive to continue to teach you, to push you to proclaim. We proclaim his excellencies because he's the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's the one who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. One primary work that is excellent here, 
as God's effectual call to sinners. You see that? God called you. If you're a Christian, that's what happened to you. God called you out. God said, Bob, Caroline, James. God called you. And when he called you, that was an effective call. Peter says this excellent God is one who calls people. There's so much in the scriptures about calling. But in Christian circles, the idea of calling, I feel like, is a little um, misinformed. Most people are thinking, like, I'm called to be this, or I'm called to be that, I'm called to be a mechanic, you know, I'm called to be a veterinarian, I'm called to be this or that. And I mean, I know what they mean. I don't want to pick too hard here, but the idea of calling in the New Testament really doesn't have much to do with that, about human vocation. No, it has everything to do with God calling you out of darkness. God personally speaking to you and calling you out of darkness. This is the dominant idea. God's personal summons to say, come forth. It's much more than a mere invitation. It's not, hey, come think about it. You know, Hey, I'm knocking at the door, let me in. That passage in Revelation 3 is to the church of Jesus Christ. Not to say that it takes away our responsibility, but what I'm saying is that when we're talking about ultimate causation here, we're talking about the call of God. We're talking about His voice is the defining moment, the defining factor, the decisive factor, and whether or not someone's in darkness or not. The language here that Peter uses, who's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, I mean, we're back in Genesis, aren't we? We're back in Genesis again. You think of the original creation at the beginning when God created the uninhabited heavens and the earth in verse 1. Right? The earth was formless and void, void and darkness was hovering over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. See, we get that inside to know what the first day was like. That first day, those first moments where you have this formless, watery mass and the Spirit of God hovering. And what was He doing there? What was the Spirit of God doing while well, He was waiting? He was waiting on a certain command, wasn't He? And when that command came, that Spirit of God actually brought about light. God says, light be in the Spirit. Brought about light. That's what we're talking about. Before, before there was light, there was darkness. And then God brings out light from darkness. God says, let there be light. And Peter says, in the heart of every true believer, God says, let there be light. He called you out of darkness into those marvelous light. That's what happens to every believer. He, he pulls you out. It's an effective calling. It pulls you out of darkness. Something we can't do for ourselves. Something we wish we could do for our family members. Something we wish we could do for our children who aren't in the light. But this is something ultimately that God does. Out of darkness. You know, it's hard to think of the fact that we were once in darkness. It's a scary notion to think that you were once in darkness if you're, if you're a Christian. 
it's sobering to think that you were once in darkness. I mean, darkness is, um, it's the domain of Satan in the, in, the new, in the scriptures. The domain of darkness. Darkness in the New Testament has everything to do with a life enslaved to sin. A life willfully ignorant, blind of the Lord and his ways. Aligned with Satan, blind to their true condition. John says in John, 1 John 2.11, the one who hates his brother, so this is a professing Christian, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Darkness has a blinding effect where you don't even really know. I mean, we think about light blinding you, but John says dark blind, darkness blinds you. It's kind of interesting how he points that out, but he's saying you're in pitch black. You can't see. You can't see what you must see. Paul says Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Satan has blinded the minds. Blinded. They're dark. And ultimately, a life continued in darkness lands a man or woman in the ultimate darkness Jesus calls outer darkness. The realm which there is no warmth of God's love or His grace. A realm where there is no fellowship, no friendship, no goodness, no brotherhood. Forever and ever. This is darkness. This is what God called you out of if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ. Outer darkness, it's scary. Cut off from everything good, all the grace of God, all the mercy of God, all sunshine, all laughter, all joy, gone, just darkness. Consigning to pain, anger, misery, woe, Jesus said, gnashing of teeth, hatred, selfishness. This is darkness. This is what, this is what you were headed for and this is what you were bound in before you were in Jesus Christ. And what makes the difference between those who are in light and those who are in darkness? God's call. God said, you're mine. Let there be light. God breaks through. Breaks the chains of sin. Breaks the chains of Satan. And then there's liberation. And this is one of the main reasons Peter says, proclaim his excellencies. What an excellent God who stoops down to reach those who willfully live apart from him in darkness. And how is this call of God expressed? How does it come about? Does God just go around and just say to folks just indiscriminately? Or is there some information being bandied about? Well, yeah, and it's bandied about through us. Listen to Paul. This is how this call of God comes. Paul says to the Thessalonians, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how does God call? Through the gospel. That's how He does it. And that's why we proclaim His excellencies. It's a wonderful thing that we get to work alongside the Lord in this wonderful task of calling people out of darkness into light. 
And we can see it happen. You know, we deliver the message and then in God's time, He takes that and He brings forth light. And of course, this is why Peter calls it marvelous. Because light, the light of God is marvelous. Light, of course, a rich theme in the Old Testament. Right In the beginning, God creates light without the sun. People make a lot of that, but I think just the reality is God doesn't need the sun for light. I mean, that, fundamentally, that's what we can say, at least. It's not something to you know, try to fit billions of years necessarily from the text. It's just a, a notion here that God doesn't need creation to shine. And again, when it comes to new heavens and new earth, we still won't need it. And therefore, there isn't one. Because the glory of God will be able to illumine. But this is a rich theme, light. Then you know that God reveals himself in a flaming fire in the bush before Moses. This flaming fire in a bush. This fire that's not dependent on the bush to, to burn. Nothing in the bush, nothing, nothing in the bush is, is required for this fire to burn. The, the bush is not consumed, the text says. Well, this teaches you something about God. Right? He's self-sufficient. Life is from himself. Then he shows himself in, in lightning flashes at Sinai. A pillar of fire to the children of Israel that guide, guide them at night, it says. The pillar of fire guides them at night. Can you imagine that, being a part of that camp and seeing this pillar of fire stretching from earth to heaven? And when it moves, you know it's time to move. Man, that's amazing. But God reveals himself, expresses himself in light, glory, brilliance. And when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, he says he is the light of the world. He's the exact representation of the glory of God, the writer of Hebrews tells us. And then we become the light of the world when we're united to Jesus. We're brought out of darkness into light. Well, where's that light from? Well, that light's derivative from him. And then in the new heavens, new earth, the glory of God and the Lamb are the light in the new world. So we're just wrapped up in this world of light now. And light and life are so integrally connected in the scriptures. In all these things, light has the idea of revelation, the revelation of God and truth and understanding and guidance and security through the Bible. You think of it, the fire in the bush was the revelation of God's word to Moses. And a revelation of who he was. Self-sufficient God. The pillar of fire, revelation of God's protection, leadership, guidance. When that fire was, 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 was going to, to move, and when it was burning and it moved, then you moved. The light of Jesus Christ, what's he called? The way, the truth, and the life. So this marvelous light that Peter here speaks of is basically being with God. Having your sight fully restored, now having the guidance and security and life and understanding and hope of the glory that only God gives. That's, that's what marvelous light is all about. It's about being with God and having your sanity restored. Seeing things clearly and rightly now as they really are. The psalmist says, for with you God is the fountain of life and in your light we see light. There's only one source of life, and it's with the Lord Jesus, the fountain of life. He's the never-ending supply of life. And again, this has so much to do with the understanding 
Which is why he says, in your light we see light. So we have understanding and the knowledge of God if we're in Jesus Christ. We've been pulled out of darkness. We see God because we are in him. So we'll stop there and yeah, just make an appeal to you guys for anybody in here who who knows you're in the dark. Anybody in here who genuinely is blind. And the scriptures say you you know you're blind when you're hating your brother. You know when you've got when you've got these issues with Christians that you feel are all justified and right and you feel right in your anger and you feel right in your hatred. You know, that means you're in the darkness. John says, if you know God, you're going to love one another. But if you hate your brother, you're in the darkness until now. If you're a slave to sin, if you have, if you have a pattern in your life of unbroken sin, you're in darkness and you need, to, you need that slavery to be broken. Let's not make it complicated. Right? We don't need to make it complicated. If you're enslaved to sin, you're in darkness. Come to Jesus Christ. Be free. Be free. He's the only one who can make you free. You can't make yourself free. He can make you free, though. And how? Well, the Isaiah tells us it's just in a look. God says, look to me, all the ends of the earth. That's how Charles Spurgeon got saved. A man declared, look to me, all the ends of the earth, and you will be saved. That's how he got saved, in a look. In a look of faith to the living God who breaks chains, calls out of darkness. This is, this is what he does. So come to Jesus Christ. And for you kids, we just pray that you'll come out of darkness and find the light of Jesus Christ. That's what we pray. And for anybody else in here who thinks they're Christians and aren't, Jesus can set you free. So, awesome text. Let's be people that proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's encourage each other that he's excellent. We all need that reminder every day, you know. God has given us text messaging to send scripture. Right? And to remember groceries, but... But man, there's so many ways we can encourage the brethren. Um, Let's use them. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you for all of your excellencies. Um, Lord, we know that they are beyond counting. I pray, Lord, that some of your excellencies would just be crystal clear in our minds this morning, Lord, that um, we would walk away just with a grander vision of who you are in this world. And, um, Lord, in so doing, our confidence in you would grow. Our love for you and for others would grow. Our courage to, to live another day in this broken, just world of upheaval would, would grow. And, Lord, in so doing, we'd be cities on a hill. We'd be lights in this dark world because we know the God who's over all. Um, And so, Lord, we just pray that you would use us. We pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us, Lord, for for the precious soul in here this morning, Lord, who's just downcast, who just feels forgotten by you, that they would remember that you can't forget anything, let alone 
um, one of your precious possessions. Um, One of the ones for whom the Lord Jesus has spilled his blood. And Lord, that you would speak to their souls and um, and give them encouragement and faith. Um, And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.